Special thanks to our promotional partners at the American Philatelic Society. The APS is the largest stamp collecting organization in the world, supporting collectors of any level worldwide. For more information about membership and APS services, visit stamps.org. I'm Charles Epting from HR Harmer in New York City. I'm Michael Cortese of Noble Spirit in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. And this is Conversations with Philatelists. Now, Michael, yeah. you've probably noticed this as well. Maybe. You cannot post anything on Twitter <laughs> can't. without learning so much more than you ever expected to about the item. So if I post mm-hmm. a cover, just a haphazard cover, hey, there's a fancy cancel on it. Within minutes, it feels, yeah. I have the addressee's life story, what they had for breakfast, where they went to school, yeah. their, their kids' names. Their grand- it's incredible that uh, this research is done so quickly by Stamp Den is how yeah. we knew him for, for a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah. But, but his actual name is? Peter Congreve. So um, he's he studies philately as a social historian. He's had articles in the AP, um, and he does these incredible long Twitter threads where he'll pick a cover or pick a postcard and then just research the addressee and who sent it. It's everything you didn't know that you wanted to know <laughs> about the people involved in the mail. Again, so so often I'm focused on the rate or the cancel or the stamp mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And then he just puts it in this whole other context. So we've never actually spoken to Peter. No. Uh, we're used to, again, we see him on Twitter almost every day yeah. uh, or in, in the YouTube comments or whatnot. So I'm really excited <laughs> to, uh, to get the chance to talk to him. And I think you mentioned he even had a little uh, show and tell for us. So I'm, I'm very he much did, looking yeah. forward to this. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it also. So, without further ado, let's bring um, him in. Let's bring him in. Hey, Peter. Hi. Hello. Thank to you meet for you. great <laughs> to meet you as well. It, it's it's strange talking to you after all the the Twitter interactions <laughs> and whatnot. It's it's fun to put a, a face behind the handle. Yeah. Yes, uh, can't help uh, feeling a little bit nervous. Uh, this end of the uh, the interview spectrum. It's usually <laughs> me on the other end of these types of things. So, uh, <laughs> No, th- th- thank you so much. Nervous. No, I don't. Of, yeah, <laughs> don't be. I mean, you, you've you've watched conversations with Philatelis before. There's no reason to be nervous. Obviously, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, no. Again, thank you for joining us. You know, for for those who maybe only know you from Twitter, can you give a little bit of uh, your background, how you got involved in the hobby, and and you know what your specific interests are, what what draws you to uh, to to conduct the the sort of research that you do? Okay. Well. Uh... I suppose my journey was set in motion probably about 100 years ago uh, with my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather was a lifelong collector. Uh, and uh, when he, he was born in India uh, and spent much of his life, uh, first half of his life in India. And while he was there, he was a collector of Indian state stamps. Uh, and it was only actually after he died that I discovered that he'd written several uh, philatelic uh, articles uh, on the stamps of India, uh, specifically uh, Bawani, uh, Aida, and Kishanga. And I apologize immensely to anyone who's offended by my awful pronunciation of those place names. <laughs> but uh, eventually he left India uh, and the collection was sold and, he, uh, and the family ended up in Australia. Uh, and I, was, I subsequently came onto the scene and although my father had been a childhood collector, it was my grandfather and uh, who introduced me, essentially, uh, to the hobby. Uh, and at that time, 
when I was sort of growing up, he was now collecting bird stamps. He was a keen ornithologist, uh, helped establish one of Australia's first bird observatories. And so when he died in 2005, I inherited about 20 albums uh, containing purely uh, bird stamps. But for me, I had dipped in and out of the hobby quite a lot. Uh, and I think it was because for me personally, uh, I hadn't found exactly what it is or where I wanted to be within the hobby. I knew I loved the hobby. I knew that I was, that I was passionate about stamps, uh, but I hadn't found my niche yet. And I think the first inkling of what has now kept me in the hobby uh, started in the mid-2000s when I read uh, an article by a gentleman by the name of Rod Perry, who was an Australian uh, philatelist, uh, auctioneer, uh, philatelic author, exhibitor, uh, who now is dead. He died uh, last year, tragically, in 2020. Uh, but in 2002, he started a column in Stamp News Australia, uh, and that was called that column was called Woodchip Free Zone, and his focus was not on stamps but more on the covers and the stamps as a as a payment for a service. So his collect his focus was on usage uh, and the postal markings that go along with this sort of with this sort of uh, with the usage of stamps on covers and. Uh, so that sort of shed a new light on the collecting hobby for me. Uh, up until then, I'd basically been just a, like many people, I just put a stamp in an album and sort of promptly forgot about it. Uh, and it was sort of more about the collecting of these objects uh, rather than about really understanding uh, what they were there to do, uh, you know, to pay postage. And so this was a real eye opener for me. Uh, and so I started collecting stamps uh, on cover. And one day I found a cover, which I was confused about whether it was a proper commercial usage or whether there was some philatelic sort of, you know, purpose behind it. And so I went, turned to the internet and I uh, looked up the name of who it had been sent to. Uh, and it turned out that that was indeed a quite a well-known collector uh, in the United States. And by searching that name, I suddenly found many other covers that had been uh, sent to him that, like the cover I was researching, uh, always bordered on the too good to be true uh, in terms of the usage of the stamps and the way they were arranged and what they were what they were essentially trying to do. Uh, and so I suddenly started to realize that knowing not just about the stamp and its postal usage, but knowing something about who was sending it or why they were being sent or who was collecting that uh, was also somewhat important. And so I started doing this research on other covers in my collection. And that's where I came across uh, the next major influence uh, in my collecting career. Uh, and that was a website called Australian Postal History and Social Philately uh, by a gentleman called Dr. Maurice Allen Mischel, uh, who was Australian born, but lived most of his life in Canada. 
uh, and his website, unfortunately, is now defunct. He died in 2016. Uh, but he published over 100 papers, uh, philatelic papers, all with an Australian connection. But his focus was on the social aspects of the covers that he, uh, that he wrote about, about who was receiving these covers rather than just purely the uh, usage side of things. So that tapped into a very early interest of my own in genealogy and history. Uh, and so I finally found, I, I think at that point, I finally realized where I needed to be uh, in, my, in my collecting. I found that at that point, I felt my collecting interest was in essence linked to, to sound rather ridiculous here, the vision of Roland Hill when he put forward the idea that of the idea of the penny post and postage stamps, that yes, it was essentially to remove the complexity and costs of the postage uh, system, but to the end of facilitating greater communication and trade, uh, he was a social reformist. And, you know, communication happens between people, not between postage stamps. So when we're holding a cover, it was, we're holding a piece of historic primary source social documentation uh, that has the capacity to tell us something about the people involved, uh, the social and cultural period in which they lived, and perhaps something about our, us. And quite often, you know, social histories tend to be limited uh, by virtue of the material that's available to the famous and the infamous. So it tends to be, social histories tend to be naturally skewed in that direction. But through letters and covers and postcards, uh, it allows us to, I think, reconstruct the lives of those who are not any of those things, famous or infamous. It allows the stories of, for want of a better term, the common man uh, to be heard again. Uh, and so that was really my fascination uh, and what has now kept me in the hobby uh, after dipping and out so many times over my life, uh, it's kept me in there. But, you know, don't get me wrong, I, I love stamps. Uh, I collect them. Uh, my focus is on Japanese stamps, especially of the Showa period, uh, the 1960s. But if, to me, if the stamps are, you know, the flowers of philately, then the covers are the gardens. Uh, they're, the, they're a rich ecosystem, you know, where everything is interconnected. And, you know, researching them, it often feels like a case study in the butterfly effect, where, which is that idea that small things can have non-linear impacts on a complex system. But uh, anyway, I hope I answered your question. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like we've touched upon that topic, uh, talking to people a couple times, but we've never really dived into it on how to um, kind of get the two the research side or people who are looking at things as purely a, a, a history and, and research of individual societies and people and everything and philatelists together. And I find, I, f I feel like you're, you're kind of connecting the two there. Do you ever submit any of your findings to people who are creating research journals or um, historians or anything like that? I don't. Um, I've, I've, I've looked at, I've sort of explored different ways of, you know, getting my sort of my research out there. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. uh, one of those ways has been through the use of stamp forums, uh, through blogs, uh, newsletters. Uh, but I tend to be a terrible blogger. I tend to uh, I tend to find that work and life tends to get in the way of yeah. uh, doing that regularly. And so I go for these long periods of not doing anything. And then uh, so I, it's been difficult. And actually, that's where I ended up in Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I was going to uh, ask about that next. Yeah, because one of the things I find about Twitter is when you're putting information like this uh, on a stamp forum or through a blog, you tend to be connecting to people who are basically interested in stamps and stamp collecting. Mm -hmm. But when I turned to Twitter, uh, I found that I was actually getting you know, likes and, you know, and uh, responses from people beyond that traditional philatelic world. Yeah, it's a larger uh, ecosystem. Yeah, yeah it's, and, and so I had people who would send me a, a DM and say, oh, I'm this person's great grandson. Uh, or people who were, you know, interested in some aspect uh, of the information I was putting out there, uh, because one of the things about Twitter is that it tends to be this sort of home to people of so many varied interests mm -hmm. that any potential tweet could hit any person uh, who may have a connection or a link to any aspect, not just the philatelic aspect, but maybe to the name of the place yeah. uh, that you're writing about. Uh, and so I've found people who, who follow me uh, who may have, who don't seem to be interested at all in philately, but who are interested in Australian history uh, because I do tend to focus uh, a lot of my uh, research on covers that have a, an Australian uh, connection. Yeah. That sort of brings me to one of the things I wanted to ask and something I, I assumed we'd talk about is um, let's say you get a cover, uh, whether it's from Australia or you see a picture of a cover on Twitter. What are the first steps for you? Where do you go first? Is it newspaper archives? Is it directories? Is it Google? What is the, the first uh, you know line of attack when you when you get something new in your hands? So for me, because I tend to limit my uh, my collecting area to Australia uh, uh, or the UK or the US, uh, one of the first places I tend to go to is uh, Family Search, which is a online genea genealogy database uh, that was set up by the Seventh-day Adventists, I believe. And so I start there. I, I like to, I tend to find that if you go straight to Google uh, and you mm -hmm. put in a name, Look, over time, there have been hundreds, thousands of people with similar names. Uh, and unless you can really pinpoint something specific about that individual, about where they were born, about the dates they were born or the dates they died, or about something specific to their work or to their interests, uh, it's very hard, unless that person is famous, uh, to be able to, you know, to find them easily. Uh, just by Googling their name. So I tend to start with a, geneal a genealogical database. Uh, 
Uh, and that quite often yields some very interesting results. Uh, it can take you to information about where they were born, where they died, uh, census information, uh, every census period, where they were living, who their children were, who their wives were. And sometimes you have to come through this research obliquely. Uh, you have to come not through the individual you're trying to find's name, uh, but through maybe a child's name or through a wife's name. Uh, sometimes that can, that can yield results that just directly searching their name does not. Uh, you also get directed to affiliated sites uh, such as Find a Grave uh, or Billion Graves, where you find information about uh, them that users, uh, maybe family members or people with a close connection to the family, have uploaded obituaries or information that they've managed to find uh, over the years themselves. Uh, usually the next stop after that is uh, newspaper archives. Hmm. Uh, I think in Australia and in the US, we're very lucky in that a lot of newspapers are archived and freely available online. Whereas in many other places, uh, they're often hidden behind a bit of a paywall. Uh, so finding contemporary articles that uh, mention the individuals uh, can often also yield very rich pickings, uh, especially as I tend to focus my studies on covers that are in the pre-decimal era. Uh, and so often before the Second World War, when a lot of newspapers uh, of that period and earlier do tend to spend a lot of time focusing on people's social lives, uh, you know, uh, where they, you know, that John Bloggs is currently visiting his aunt from, you know, Seattle uh, and is expected to return in the next week. You know, you, you tend to find a lot of focus on uh, social events. After the Second World War, you tend to find the newspapers starting to move away from that and starting to focus more on you know, world events uh, or, you know, major events uh, and focusing less on the lives of individuals. I'm not sure if that's a bad thing, actually, uh, but uh, it, uh, it's certainly uh, the newspapers provide uh, a great source of material. Yeah, I, I feel like I keep going back to this this comment that, um, that when we talked to Dr. Cheryl Gans, uh we asked her kind of how the the National Postal Museum gets people involved in, in philately and everything. And she said, well, if you want to get philatelists or if you want to get people involved in philately, if you want to get outsiders involved, you have to stop talking to philatelists. And I think what you're doing there is a is a perfect example of reaching people from outside of the hobby who are interested in the social aspect and the history aspect and, and getting them excited about this these covers because they can definitely tell a story about what life was like in that time and add to the newspapers and add to the to the family search history and everything like that i think it's it's terrific you build these massive blogs <laughs> blog posts that are just very intricate so w when do you this may be a, a bit of a strange question, but when do you know when to start and stop? So you pick a cover and you pick a person on the cover. Do you essentially 
cover the in-person's entire history? Do you cover the... It's more about the people than the travel route of the actual cover itself, correct? I love exploring how the cover got to from where it started to where it ended up, uh, mm -hmm. absolutely. But it's a very, very uh, interesting question about, you know, where do you start, where do you stop? Yeah. Um, I tend to go back uh, as far as I feel I need to and as far as I'm able to, in terms of the information available, mm -hmm. that really allows me uh, to feel that I now understand where this person came from, to where they are at this point, to send this particular postal artifact uh, to whoever it is that's who's receiving it. Uh, so quite often I will construct a family tree uh, for that person, uh, based on newspaper records, based on um, online genealogical genealogical records, uh, and that can go back generations, go back three, four, five generations sometimes. And like most stories, I like to have an ending, so I will also go beyond the date of the cover, mm -hmm. uh, not in a huge amount of detail. But I do like to find if there's a happy ending somewhere down the line, uh, or even a tragic ending, which is maybe more exciting. <laughs> but that's uh, so really there's no there's no set start and stop. Um, it may even go beyond the lives of the people who actually sent the uh, cover or received the cover. Mm -hmm. uh, if though if that cover has had its own history uh, that has gone beyond their lives. Uh, to their children or even grandchildren or, you know, uh, down some other stream, then that's fair game as well. Something specific that I wanted to mention really quick that I'm, I'm fascinated by, and you talk about, you know, uh, get, you know, getting people uh, outside of the hobby involved and, and sort of stamps in their social context. I don't think people realize today the uh, prevalence or, um, uh, you know, uh, prolific nature of slogan cancels which is something that you post about a lot that I'm fascinated by because, you know, whether it was uh, an agricultural fair or the anniversary of a university or something like that, these slogan cancels are really sort of the town criers announcing news or announcing anniversaries or whatnot. And I suppose there's still some of that and every year they put the Christmas cancel uh, on, on us mail or, you know, support the NHS in the UK or whatnot. But, but the, the role of a slogan cancel has obviously shifted from something that was, um, uh, again, sort of utilitarian, a way of spreading news, a way of uh, conveying information to people. Can you talk about your interest in slogan cancels really quick? Because it's something that I personally love as well. Uh, to me, slogan cancels are an extension on this idea of a, uh, a social document. Uh, I have a special interest in the short-term slogan cancels of Australia. And when I mean short-term, uh, they can be cancels that have been that were used for a matter of days, uh, up to perhaps a, a month or more, uh, but can be incredibly difficult to find and uh, quite rare, uh, mainly because a lot of these slogan cancels, which advertise you know, local events in small rural communities, um, came from sort of low postal usage areas. Hmm. Uh, and so, if you're looking for the true rarities uh, of philately, then slogan cancels uh, fits that bill uh, beautifully. 
And you're right, Charles, you know, everything from country fairs, uh, advertising uh, to ex-inhabitants of the area that these events are happening uh, and that, uh, you know, calling people back uh, to visit the town again uh, to recognising uh, the anniversaries uh, since they became a municipality. Can't even say the word. Uh, became you know became a uh developed a proper gut you know they, they became self-governed in a sense uh so all of these covers tell us something about the social events the social history uh of the uh of these locations uh where they originate from and i, I find that absolutely fascinating I, I agree, and I think it's also a fun thing because a lot—I mean, a lot of them are common. A lot of them are a dime a dozen, but then you get that occasional one that, yeah, it was only in use for a long weekend in a small town. And there can be some some rarity and, and value to a slogan cancel as well. In addition to the, uh, you know, you, you've got the historical context, but it's fun when something that is perceived as common can uh, can surprise you every once in a while. I sometimes look in the Australian newspaper archives for information about a town fair that's on a slogan cancel, and there is absolutely nothing reported in any newspaper about that event. Uh, and it leaves you utterly bewildered. Uh, some, are, some are heralded months in advance. Mm -hmm. uh, there is extensive coverage of the event itself. Uh, and there's even coverage after the event about, you know, what came of various aspects of it. Uh, but there are many that were not even reported on. And so these slogan cancels uh, are sometimes, I mean, there are still, you know, if you, go to, uh, if you go to local history archives, you might find an old program. Uh, but quite often these slogan cancels can be the only clue that yeah. some of these events took place at all. Wow. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, do you find many things like that that kind of put the puzzle pieces back in history that, that, that you discover something and say, hey, I didn't, I didn't think this was this way before, or it changes your opinion on something? Or I know you, you say that mm -hmm. a lot of the research is done more on the, the common man, as you will, but I'm <laughs> sure there's there's things that you stumble upon that might actually change even just a tiny bit. You said that butterfly effect, um, the history books in, in the places that you're researching them. I'd love to say that I was changing history, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm afraid it's just not, just not true. Uh, <laughs> Maybe adding to it, adding to it. But I'm adding to it. Yeah. I'm adding to it. And certainly every, uh, every cover uh, mm -hmm. that you research is somewhat of a learning experience. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're looking at a cover, the, there's, you know, there's a cover that I particularly love uh, in my collection where when I look at the U.S. Census uh, information for the year it was sent, 1920, uh, there is no record of this person anywhere in this U.S. Census. Hmm. Uh, but for this cover, yeah, we we know where this person was uh, and where they lived and the job they had uh, in this period. Uh, and so, is that important to history? Probably not. Right. But it may be important to 
someone who is researching their family tree. Yeah. Someone yeah. who is, you know, who is out there searching for answers about their own lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if something that I've researched, uh, you know, achieves that, uh, yeah. gives someone uh, something they just didn't know before about themselves, then I'm happy with that. Can you contribute to the gene genealogical website that you use to um, research uh, these people? If you find a family member that that wasn't listed or anything? I mean, it's certainly possible. You can um, you can set up uh, in many of these uh, websites. You can set up uh, user based family trees. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, put that information out there. Mm -hmm. But as I tend not to focus, uh, spend all my time researching every aspect <laughs> yeah. uh, of the family history of that particular individual, uh, yeah. I don't tend to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you had mentioned that you had some items that you were interested in sharing. But yeah, before absolutely. we get to that, I just had one last question about those things is how long does it typically take you to put one of these Twitter threads or, or a blog even together? Is it based on based on your Twitter responses, I would guess like two minutes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we had a live stream the other day and, and you 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 mentioned the the his the family history of the person that Charles showed a cover of of, of fifteen seconds. The Herrick family, yes, with Mary Elizabeth Herrick uh, and her trip from India in 1861. Uh, no, um, it depends. Uh, I can spend as little as two minutes uh, and find information quite readily, uh, or it can take me uh, many, many, many months. Wow. Uh, and in fact, I never close the book on any cover. Mm -hmm. um, it's been wonderful that as, you know, material becomes um, digitized uh, and made available, that the longer you wait, the more information there is out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I tend to always come back to covers. Even after I think I've pretty much done with them, yeah. um, I'll occasionally revisit them. I'll put those names back into my normal search engine, uh, search engines. And it can be amazing. Uh, just how often um, I will pick up a nugget of information or there's a new newspaper that's just recently been archived or a new book that's been archived and made available through Google Books uh, mm. or, or through archive.org uh, that sheds uh, new light uh, or provides just a little bit more information than I knew before. Uh, so no cover is ever closed uh, to that uh, research process. Uh, that's what actually makes uh, this aspect of the hobby for me mm -hmm. uh, particularly fascinating um, because it is, it's never a closed book. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll go ahead and set up the possibility for you to screen share, but as I'm no, doing that, absolutely. I had one other question. So. Do you find yourself when researching these people and uh, and if you find anyone super interesting, collecting covers that you've already researched, or collecting covers of families or people that you've already researched? So you find X person, you research his history, and then you say, I really like this person, their history. Let me go see if I can find more covers addressed yeah. to or sent from that person. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Quite often you find that if covers are 
if covers still exist and they're still out there, yeah, then they're, they're quite often not just a one-off. Yeah, uh, yeah, they can be, of course, but quite often they come from a family hoard of letters, mm-hmm. uh, and somehow somewhere in their histories they've been palmed off to relatives or maybe sold uh, and then broken up uh, and unsold, uh, and so. Part of the fun actually is, yes, exactly that. Yeah. Uh, finding always, and I've got this sort of database in my head now uh, of names. And so when I'm looking around and I and I see a name, ha, you know, it's, yeah. it, it, or, it feels like either no mail to somebody survived or a bunch of mail to somebody survived. Exactly. It, 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 I feel like it would be rare that like only one letter to some, you know, it's, it's yeah. either part of this, this correspondence that miraculously survived or it was just lost to time. So no, mm-hmm. I, I, I do the same thing when there's a name that triggers a, uh, yeah. a little memory in the back of your mind. And having more of those covers to put together, you create a much richer timeline of events, Yeah, you know, in these, people's lives uh and there was one uh particular set of covers which i got over a period of time uh to a family called the marchant family uh and it was one cover that actually in that collection that finally when i got it suddenly made me realize why these covers had survived at all uh because it was a cover uh to the son of the individual Mm-hmm. who I'd been researching from a stamp dealer. Uh, and this cover had been sent to this young 13-year-old boy uh, during a typhoid epidemic uh, mm-hmm. in this small country, rural Australian town. Uh, and suddenly it clicked. That's why all these covers exist. This son who had... I don't know, maybe because he was t- stuck at home because of the typhoid uh, fever that was raging and killing the people in the, in the town around him, uh, decided that, you know, he'd become a stamp collector. And so he uh, ended up um, preserving this rich uh, history of uh, the, family's, um, the family's correspondence. Wow. Wow. That's... It's a fantastic find. Well, I, I, we've heard so much about it. We'd love to see uh, see what you've got, if you don't mind yeah. sharing with us. Absolutely. Now, how do I do this? Okay, hang on. Okay. Um, so this rather scruffy-looking cover uh, is addressed to uh, Edward uh, Newton, who mm-hmm. was a noted ornithologist. Uh, it's one of my collecting areas, uh, the postal history of organized ornithology. Yeah. Uh, and it's addressed to him at Elverdon Hall in, uh, in Thetford, uh, which is on the uh, Suffolk-Norfolk boundary uh, in the UK, uh, in 1850, uh, sent uh, from Cambridge, but uh, no return address, hmm. unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, and no name of the sender. Uh, it was quite a common practice during this time that when people would receive mail, they might uh, write along the left the left edge of the front of the cover, uh, the name of the person who sent it and the uh, date that it was either answered or received. For their, uh, for their own but, records. But for their own records, absolutely. Yeah. But nothing, um, nothing on this one. Um, but when we lift up 
the back mm. of the flat, we see this wonderful uh, little addition uh, to the letter that it once contained. Uh, and it says, uh, I called on uh, Savile today. The man who owns a swan is away and will not be back for a day or two. I fear there's little chance of getting its sternum, but I now almost doubt it's been anything than the colon. <laughs> I have got from him a decent white-fronted goose's bone. Now, when we delve into Edward Newton's family history, what we quickly find out is his brother, uh, Alfred Newton, uh, was a student at Magdalen College at Cambridge uh, between 1948 and 1952. So this cover falls right in the center of that period. Hmm. Uh, and we also know uh, from the archives of the Museum of Zoology at the University of Cambridge that they hold a catalog of bird bones that have been collected by Alfred and Edward Newton. Uh, and that catalogue consists of six notebooks, each of about 50 pages long. <laughs> and so we can see even when uh, Alfred was a, you know, a student and his brother only 13 years of age, uh, you know, back home in, in, uh, in Elverdon Hall where he was born, uh, that together they, even at that young age, were enthusiastic about the anatomy of birds. Uh, and Alfred Newton ended up uh, becoming a professor of comparative anatomy uh, at Cambridge and spent his entire life there. Uh, he never married. Whereas Edward Newton, later Sir Edward Newton, um, became a colonial secretary for Mauritius uh, and later Jamaica. Hmm. And it was while he was in Mauritius that he sent his brother back one of the most complete dodo skeletons uh, in the UK today. Wow. And which is uh, housed in the uh, uh, University of Cambridge's uh, Museum of Zoology. Uh, in fact, it's one of the highlights of their collection. Mm -hmm. wow. So uh, a fantastic little cover. And I've actually managed to get three other covers uh, to Edward by other members of his family, not just his uh, brother, um, that have exactly the same uh, way of ending a letter by writing on the inside of the back flap. Hmm. So interesting. Was that a common practice that, back then? I've not seen that on other covers. Uh, oh. It may have been a just a little family quirk. Yeah. Uh, but if there are other covers out there by other families, uh, then. Um, I'll eat my words, but uh, <laughs> but it's a wonderful little cover, and um, and this is a and these are and you talked earlier about you know a name that you look for when you're looking for covers. Mm -hmm. The Newton family is one of those uh, names that I keep a special eye out for. Yeah. So the um, the contents of that have kind of been uh, lost to history. I'm lost afraid. to history. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this. Uh, this is a set of three covers. Uh, okay. Two I managed to get at the same time. Uh, one I got many years later. Um, okay. But they're part of the same correspondence. Uh, they were written, uh, they were, there was correspondence between two sisters. Okay. And the sender of these letters, I talked earlier about the 1920 census and the missing individual. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is her. This is Lottie Anderson. 
Okay. Uh, and she wrote in July of 1920 to her sister, uh, Ingrid, uh, in Australia, um, from this return address, 4931 uh, Franklin Avenue. And that's a picture on your screen of that address. Mm -hmm. And it is it was the home of Arthur Letts. Now, Arthur Letts okay. was the owner of the Broadway department store in Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, so he kept a retinue uh, of servants. Uh, and at the bottom of the screen, you can see the 1920 census information where he had three servants mm -hmm. uh, at home uh, at the time of the census. And Lottie Anderson was not one of them. Um, however, I can't find her in any other census record for 1920. Uh, so, but, so from this cover, we can assume either uh, she was away on the day of the census or she began her employment perhaps shortly after uh, the census was taken. Mm -hmm. uh, but what is interesting is that the servants were using the main house address uh, for their mail, as I right. assume uh, the family uh, who lived there would also have done. So there wasn't a, doesn't seem to be a separate address uh, for a servant's mail. I feel fairly certain she was a servant because in 1910, uh, mm -hmm. in the previous census, 10 years earlier, uh, Lottie Anderson is found in the uh, census as a servant in another home. Okay, okay. So it's not like she was undocumented entirely. No, um, she was not uh, undocumented entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, her time there was very short-lived. Um, mm -hmm. Arthur Letts died in 1923. Uh, his house uh, that you see there on the screen was demolished in 1927. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, and actually, remnants were used from that house to construct Arthur Letts' son's home, which in mm -hmm. 1971 became the Playboy Mansion. Oh, <laughs> there's a wild turn of events. Okay. No. Now, one of the amazing things you can find when you're looking in the genealog genealogical databases is you can find uh, applications for passports. Mm -hmm. uh, and so here is uh, Ingrid Anderson uh, okay. on the right. Uh, and on the left, uh, the person to whom the, those covers were sent care of. Uh, and that's the operatic diva, uh, Madame Eyre. Uh, Madame Eyre and Ingrid Anderson had a long history together. Um, Ingrid had been her servant um, right back to when, uh, when Madame Eyre was quite, a young, was quite young. Uh, and after Ingrid left her service, she actually went into service for... Uh, Madame Eyre's uh, aunt. Okay. And it was while Ingrid was uh, working for the aunt that Madame Eyre sent a message to her from Australia saying, I need you, come and join me. Hmm. And so these photos are the photos that were submitted uh, for the passport applications for this 1920 trip uh, to Australia. Uh, and where these, uh, and as a result, where these covers were sent. Uh, the Centre news article shows that just before Madame Eyre actually left the US, uh, a temporary restraining order was placed on her to prevent her leaving. Uh, and it was signed, I love the name, by Judge Jury. 
so judge jury signed it. Uh, her ex-husband uh, requested it. Uh, he was concerned about the welfare of her child, mm. uh, of his child. Uh, but it was quickly resolved. Uh, she was able to take the child out of the country uh, on the condition that she bring the child back uh, within six months. Uh, she did not do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible that, that all of this can be found from these these newspapers well, that are just... What's amazing about um, Madame Eyre was that she had this habit of constantly reinventing herself. Mm-hmm. So in her application for her passport to go to Australia, she actually lies uh, about her father. When oh, wow. you can see here on her application for a passport that when asked about her father, she calls him A. Ackley. Mm-hmm. His real name was Ackley Plumstead. Hmm. Uh, so what the A for A. Ackley stands for, I assume it's Ackley Ackley. Uh, so she lies about her father's name. Um, she also lies about the fact that he is deceased. In fact, he was very much alive and living with uh, Madame Eyre's aunt, um, his sister. And in the center of the screen there, you can see actually uh, a few years later, uh, he's actually um, extolling the health giving benefits of Tanlac, the the great elixir, uh, (laughs) saying that he's never been in better health. Uh, he didn't actually die until uh, 1926, I believe. So why she lied about his death in her and about his name in her uh, application for a passport, yeah. who knows? Uh, but again, it's, it's an interesting insight into the fact that in these applications for a passport, there was probably very limited opportunity uh, you know, pre-internet, uh, yeah. for, and, you know, centralized record systems, right. uh, for the government to be able to confirm the details that were given to them. Right. Yeah. If she intended on, um, kind of not going missing, but not returning, um, with the child, it would be more difficult to find her, her father, if she gave a fake name and then said he was, so her, her kind of emergency contact oh, there. Is... Lord, I... You know, things I found out about this young lady, uh, you know, would fill a one-hour podcast. <laughs> it, That's uh, incredible. Two hours. It'd have to be serialized. Yeah. But uh, she was an amazing woman who uh, constantly kept reinventing herself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this next cover, the John Hancock cover, again, it's a cover where there's no information about who sent it. Right. And so, again, we have to go into their personal history to really understand, you know, where this came from and who sent it. Mm-hmm. But it's when you're researching covers like this, uh, there are clues to be found everywhere. And in this one, we have the impression in the black sealing wax. Okay. We also have the circular date stamps. We have the fact that this is a morning cover. Mm-hmm. And by piecing those clues together, what we quickly find is that the heraldic symbol, the initials WCH, and the uh, family motto, let them talk, um, belonged to William, and I've just written it down somewhere so I won't forget, um, William William Chapman Hewitson. Okay. And John Hancock and William uh, Hewitson were great friends. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and this was sent from Escher, uh, if we were able to read the uh, circular date stamps, um, which was the post office town serving um, Hewitson's home uh, that he called Oatlands. Okay. Uh, and, and it was Oatlands that he bequeathed to John Hancock after his death in 1978. Now, it just so happened that the Natural History Society of Northumbria actually contains a very rich correspondence between these two men. So when I learned that this was a letter passed between the two of them, right. I actually contacted uh, the society uh, and their librarian did some research for me and found that there was only one cover that they had in their collection that was sent in the year that this cover was sent, uh, 1854. Hmm. Uh, and they sent me a transcript of that letter, uh, which you see in the center of the screen. And when you read this letter, there can only be one conclusion that you can come to, and that this is the letter that was in this, that was in this cover. Wow. Uh, and it talks about the death of Hewitson's wife. Hmm. Uh, they had been married uh, only seven months previously, uh, before her death, aged 29, in January 1854. Uh, and in this letter of July 1854, uh, he tells his dear friend John Hancock that uh, he needs to leave his home for some time because everything that he looks at just reminds him of her. Hmm. Uh, so it's quite uh, it's quite an emotional letter, uh, yeah. 167 years old now. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's these social, you know, delving into the social histories uh, of these individuals that brings this sort of uh, history to light. Yeah. And when I inquired further about how perhaps this cover had become divorced of this letter, mm -hmm. uh, I found that many, many, many years ago, uh, they had sold off virtually all of their covers. The uh, historians. And, and and keeping the letters. Oh, okay. I was well, just about to ask if, if you were able to provide them with a scan then of the of the cover, but it sounds like yeah, they already had it. I did. Just, yeah. No, I did. I sent them a scan of the cover. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, they need, you know, museums often need to fund their collections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so collectors are out there willing to buy covers. And yeah. quite often for these museums, uh, keeping the letters is seen as being more important than perhaps yeah, keeping the cover, uh, which, as, you know, which can be sold off, which can you know, bring much needed funds uh, yeah. to the museum. Yeah, uh, and it seems that this is what happened in this case. And it's, and it's just wonderful to be able to read the letter yeah. that was once enclosed in this cover. Can I interject a quick story regarding that, the uh, selling off of assets? Yeah. There, there's a, a, one of the uh, American provisional stamps from Millbury, Massachusetts. I think there's eight known covers, um, one of which was in the uh, American Antiquarian Society archives. It had been donated to them in, I think, the 1880s. So for 100 years, it had sat in the archives. And um, one of the Millbury covers came up for sale in the Will Brothers sale in 1989. Uh, a gentleman named John Boker, uh, one of the greatest collectors of all time, uh, failed to purchase it at auction. Uh, he was the underbidder. He was very frustrated, and uh, he had sort of regret for not bidding higher uh, after the sale. So he called up the American Antiquarian Society, 
and convinced them to sell him their copy of the Millbury cover. Uh, so it sat in an archive for over a hundred years and out of um, you know, frustration with the auction results, he just went and, and, and bought this one, which it, it, I think ruffled a lot of feathers that they didn't at least put it up for auction to try and get top dollar. But he must yeah. have made them an offer that they just couldn't refuse. So it's interesting. And I believe they kept the contents as well. So it's interesting how the contents are what these uh, repositories crave so badly. Yeah. Absolutely. And if I, if we got time for one more. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, this cover, uh, which I like to call the Miller cover, um, was sent to uh, Miss Suzanne Dubois uh, in Rose Bay, New South Wales, a suburb of Sydney, Australia, uh, in 1946. Uh, and it's, it's a fascinating cover, uh, not only because it's a rare example of a voiceograph cover. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, the record it's, that it once contained is long gone. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it's got a fascinating history behind it. And earlier you were asking me, how far back do you go? Yeah. Or yeah. How do you know where to start or where to stop? Uh, this is one of those examples where I'm going to prove to you that you can go a, a long way back. <laughs> uh, but it also is, it's also proof of one of those covers where there is still a lot to learn, a lot to discover. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is Fullerton Miller. His full name was Albert Fullerton Miller. Okay. Uh, this photograph of him uh, on a passport for a trip to Latin America um, was actually uh, from 1946, the same year that he sent this cover. Uh, so again, we have a contemporary image of the sender of the cover uh, to go with the cover itself. Now, he was an executive with the, uh, with the Central Ohio Paper Company. Uh, and you can see that on the Prexies, the Perfins, uh, mm -hmm. COP. Uh, that, are, that are attached to the cover and the address from which it was sent uh, on Commonwealth Park North uh, in Bexley, Ohio uh, is also pictured there. And I, and I got this from Google Maps and I see it's for sale. Uh, oh, so, okay. <laughs> so there you go, a lovely looking home uh, yeah. for anyone who's interested. Uh, and so it was very easy to find out a little bit about Albert Fullerton Miller. Uh, he's got a very rich uh, historic record. It was also quite easy to find out a bit about the person who he was sending uh, this voice message to uh, mm -hmm. via record. Uh, Suzanne uh, was actually not at home uh, when this letter arrived. Uh, she was actually in Tasmania uh, at the time. She was attending uh, the wedding of a relative. And that's a picture of her on the far left of this picture uh, mm -hmm. in her bride's gown outfit where she was uh, a bridesmaid at this wedding. Uh, and so she was there. And while she was there, she was shuffling around to different relatives. Uh, and these pictures uh, next to the wedding photo, uh, pictures of the people and the homes that this cover was redirected to hmm. uh, each time. So it was first redirected from her home in Rose Bay uh, to Mrs. O'Connor. Uh, and that's Mrs. O'Connor at the top of the screen. And that's her address. 
uh, which funnily enough, in 1946, that same year, also hosted um, His Royal Highness, uh, the oh. Prince of, um, oh goodness, uh, the one who, gentleman who recently passed away. Um, Albert? Completely escapes me at the moment. Uh, <laughs> Prince Philip. Oh, Philip. Philip. Prince Philip, um, then of Greece, uh, uh, who, was, okay. who stayed with her at that home uh, while he was on leave from the Royal Navy mm -hmm. uh, and while they were stationed in Australia. Um, so, uh, yeah, she had royal connections. Uh, wow. And um, and then it was and then that cover was redirected again uh, to the lady that you see at the bottom of the screen. Uh, and her full name was Lucilla Caroline Victoria Harrison. And that's her home in Norley Longford. Uh, she was a Tasmanian state champion golfer and had won the Australian <laughs> Ladies Amateur Golf Championship in mm. 1913. Uh, but so this cover followed Suzanne around as she went from relative to relative to relative. And it was trying to figure out that family connection. How were all of these people related? Mm -hmm. well. That using contemporary records from newspapers and genealogical wow. websites that I was able to construct this family tree, yeah. which shows that all of these families are connected by going back one, two, three, four generations wow. uh, to Roderick O'Connor and James George Parker, who arrived in Tasmania on the same ship, the Ardent, mm -hmm. uh, on the 7th of May, 1824. And it was James George Parker's three children who created these three branches of the same family to which each of these people who these covers can this cover connects uh are related so suzanne was connected through james george's son charles allen parker uh diane collins whose wedding she attended uh was connected through james george's um daughter mary ann parker uh and the final person it was redirected to lucilla was connected to james george parker's third uh child lucilla parker wow. and so it's only by going back that many generations that you're able to make sense of the family links and connections that uh, that had this cover traveling the breadth of Tasmania. And also, it just shows uh, an incredible linkage at that time that after four generations, mm -hmm. that these different branches of the family were still in close right. con contact with. And when Michael asked you earlier, how do you know how far back to go and how far forward yeah. to go? Here's one where had you stopped a generation before, it would have looked like, you know, yeah. four disconnected branches of family. Yeah. And it's only by going back to the 1820s yeah. that you were able to tell the complete story. So I, that's a perfect illustration of, yeah, that's crazy that of not to, knowing when to when to stop or when not to stop, I suppose. You have to go back to the exactly 1820s to, to trace why a cover took the trip it did in 1946. Exactly right. Uh, of course, Suzanne eventually went on and uh, got married herself uh, in 1947 uh, to Lieutenant Commander Robert Clutterbuck, 
who was a lieutenant commander uh, of submarines. Uh, and she went to live in the UK. Uh, they eventually came back to Australia. Oh, that's but, the videograph. <laughs> but the mystery yeah. is, for me still, mm-hmm. what is the connection between the gentleman who sent Suzanne this cover yeah. and sent, sent Suzanne this recorded message on record? Yeah. And, you know, what, yeah, what is their connection? Uh, I've not been able to figure that out yet. Uh, yeah. All my research, I can't find any link between these two individuals interesting, uh, at all. Uh, and so that's where the joy of these covers, and again, we were talking earlier about, you know, when do you know when to stop? You just don't, yeah. uh, because, <laughs> you know, there, there is still mysteries to be found. Yeah. There must yeah. have been some close connection that would have this recently divorced young paper company executive mm-hmm writing to uh, or not writing uh, yeah. speaking recording to this young single australian girl uh you know twenty thousand kilometers away uh you know uh and what that connection is i just don't know wow wow well i hope you are able to discover you know, that. We're, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to touch base with you again once you uh piece yeah. this together <laughs> yeah I think our listeners are, will, uh, will, will be curious for any updates. Yeah. Maybe they'll have the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's incredible. All right. So, yeah, that, so that's, that's me. This has been one of the most uh, interesting. I mean, I, I love, you know, there's a lot of times where it's uh, uh, very much an involved conversation. Then there's other times, like when we spoke to Cheryl, like this where uh, I feel like Michael and I can just sort of sit back and enjoy, which is nice <laughs> to uh, not be in the driver's seat for once. So I, I feel like this was a, again, this is as enjoyable for me as I, I hope it is for all of our listeners, because I, I just loved this. Yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing these and the, the, the links that you have to go to in order to find out some of the information. That, I mean, it's just phenomenal. And some of the things that you're, that you're discovering and, and piecing together, I mean, it's it's... I think it's a great service to historians and a great service to the hobby, what you're doing by grabbing all this information and, and compiling it, because it definitely seems like it's all over the place. You've got to go to five different locations to create this one story and this tiny... Yeah. Well, isn't that the know, joy of research, by... to find all these you know disconnects yeah. well, and, and, to, and, make, and to make sense of them? Yeah. And not to get too romantic, but the last thing I'll say is I, I feel like it's also a great service to these people. Yes. Again, you, we, you know, we we're talking earlier, you know, are, are you changing history? Arguably not. But you're keeping these people's memories alive, these people who exactly. would be forgotten by the history books. Um, and I, you know, I'd like to think that somewhere they're they're looking down on us talking about these covers, smiling that, that somebody cares about them 100 years later. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that's been romantic at all. In fact, I was going to say that <laughs> earlier and I thought maybe I was being too romantic by saying it. <laughs> so I, I sort of kept that one back. But I'm glad you said that because yeah. it's no, exactly they, they, right. they, they deserve it. They took the time to write these letters. They took the time yeah. to record these records. Um, they, they, you know, we, we owe it to them to, to keep a little piece of them alive. Yeah. They've given us something that we can continue to enjoy and pass on to generation to generation to generation. Uh, and I think we, in a sense, we owe it to them. Absolutely. Uh, you know, to keep to keep their to keep their memories, you know, out there. Couldn't yeah. agree more. Perfect, Peter. Thank you so much uh, 
thank you so much for showing this to us and 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 joining us here today and um and yeah thank taking, you for inviting me no of course i think i i think i first started watching you from episode three uh, <laughs> i i wasn't there for episode one i have gone back since and watched yeah. the first two uh but i've been watching ever since uh but i never expected to uh to actually be on the show myself so. I, M- michael was the one who suggested it uh i i jumped at the uh the suggestion i thought it was was brilliant and uh you, this this I, I was I was expecting uh, a great time, and this um, this even exceeded my expectations. So yeah, thank, thank you, you so much, and uh, we'll see you on on Twitter in a couple of minutes. I'm sure. <laughs> I think thank I'm going to go get some sleep. I think it's uh, it's midnight. <laughs> That's right. That's it. Thank you so much. Well, P- P- Peter, thank you again. This was a a, a real pleasure, and uh, we really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. No problem at all, and thank you to both of you for you know CWP. It's a, it's a wonderful service in and of itself. Thank you. Well, we appreciate that. All right. Thank you and good night. Good night. We'll talk to you soon, Michael. This was fantastic. Um, yeah. Sometimes I get lost going down these rabbit holes. Yeah. And I'm so glad to see that it's not just me, and mm-hmm. also to see that there's somebody who does it so much better than I do it. <laughs> um, I loved that. I loved that. No, um, his his contribution. I, again, I, I can't say it enough. His contribution to philately and history is just. It, well, it's and, massive. And, the work and what he's I was doing saying is... too, like I, I when I travel and and you haven't traveled with me really, so you haven't gotten yeah. this side of me yet. Uh, but I go to cemeteries all the time. Yeah, yeah. And I just walk around the cemetery. And even Allison, who I work with, like we were up in in a couple counties up, mm-hmm. and we just went to a cemetery. And yeah. you just read their names, you read their dates of birth, you read mm-hmm. all this stuff, just to keep some memory of these people alive. Yeah. And that's really again, Peter said he didn't want to mention it. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too like hard on my sleeve right now. But to me, that's what this is about more than anything. Yeah. Is these people took the time to write a letter or even record their voice on a disc. Yeah. And like we we have to do something. Like it's not fair for people who put so much effort into corresponding with one another mm-hmm. for them to just be lost to time. Yeah. And that's, so yes, it is important to contribute to the historical record yeah. and to philately, but it's important to these people's legacies. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And, and he totally gets that. He's totally all in on that. It's just phenomenal how quickly he can, he said, sometimes it takes him two minutes. Yeah. Um, and he's not joking. We've seen yeah. that. We've Where seen I it. throw something up on Twitter and like I, I actually posted a picture of a cancel this morning. Yeah. And uh, and I was like, I, I made sure I didn't put the address in because I didn't want to distract him before our episode. <laughs> I was like, we got we we got to keep him on on yeah. topic. No, but um, then you can you can sense his his passion and his frustration when he can't figure something out yeah. and he keeps going back to it. And well, I, I love when he talks about coming back. Nothing is ever fully solved. Yes. Maybe they digitize a new paper mm-hmm. or somebody uploads a family photo mm-hmm. or something. And it's like all these, these little breadcrumbs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's about the people. jigsaw puzzle. As he was talking, I was imagining him putting together an exhibit uh, of an entire family's history, family tree through postal history, and then having a member of the family there to visit the exhibit and present it and, I didn't want to. It, I'm not going to put him on the spot and suggest make, he do make that. Make him but... do that. No, <laughs> well, that's no, just yeah, a phenomenal. I, I, just a huge thank you to Peter for joining yeah. us. Again, yeah. somebody I feel like we've gotten to know via social media mm-hmm. for the last. I mean, he said he started with episode three. So, you know, yeah. we've, we've basically known him for a year now. Yeah. And uh, yeah. to be able to talk to him, to see him, to, to, to him. hear his voice, it yeah. was uh it was really fun and yeah. um not yeah. just, just a huge thank you to peter for for joining us yeah yeah absolutely and so late at night with that time change yeah, midnight uh, yeah I, I feel bad when we do our live streams and we have to uh, you know we we pushed it back which helped the people in california yeah and totally 
uh, screwed over Peter. In I know, Japan. but he still he still watches. Exactly. Still no, so th- this this was a lot of fun. I feel yeah. like I feel like we've made a new friend through the podcast too, which yeah. is exciting. Yeah. So uh, thank Definitely. you to Peter and thank you to everyone for listening as always. Yeah. Um, you can find us on Google, um, Apple, Spotify, Podcasts, yeah. uh, YouTube. Um, we have a website at flatterlypodcast.com. We have an yep. email, flatterlypodcast at gmail.com. Yep. Charles L. Epting and Michael J. Court on Twitter, which is mm-hmm. where I've been most active lately, yeah. I would say, social yeah. media wise. Um, and yeah, let's oh. uh, let, let's let's catch up with Peter again real soon. Yeah. This and uh, been... let's you and me uh, record another episode real soon. We've got a fun one in a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that a lot. Um, Absolutely. That'll be a good one. But this is a great one. Yeah. Um, watch this one on on YouTube. Yeah. If, if you've made it this far and mm. uh, and um no, Michael, this was a lot of fun. Let's yeah. uh let, let's let's chat again in a couple of days. Exactly. Talk to you later. Bye. Have a good one, man. See you.